0: Welcome to SWIP, Strong Women in Psychedelic Politics with host Leo Russell. This week, I interview Acacia Lewis, an underground plant medicine healer and leader. This interview is done over Zoom.
1: So I want to welcome Acacia um, Sherman Lewis to our podcast. This is Strong Women in Psychedelic Politics. Acacia is doing lots in the plant medicine realm, and I had first heard about her from Darren LeBaron uh, for a talk that he did in Seattle in terms of hearing about her in the community, but I had already talked with her on Facebook and had seen the exciting things that she was doing, and I know that she's doing plant medicine uh, experiences for folks in Mexico and if you don't mind, I thought we would just kind of jump right in with with some of my questions. And then if if you don't like the question, we can move on. OK, um, well, I would like to know because you've always stuck struck me as a very profound person and as a person that seems very spiritually connected on like a higher dimension um, than like the earthly plane and the the world that we are constantly being bombarded with. Um, and so I would like to know a little bit about your childhood. Like, I know that, um, you know, gender or sexuality might have been uh, an issue for you as you're growing older. And maybe if you feel comfortable talking about that, I'd, I'd love to hear more. But in terms of your early childhood, do you mind telling folks a little bit about like where you grew up and what your family was like? Or I know today is Father's Day and I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Um, but like just a little bit about like your childhood and, and I'd also like to know, did you have a sense when you were younger about kind of like your destiny or a sense of, um, maybe being like a a star child or on a different level, you know, just sometimes folks talk about feeling from a very young age, like they, uh, they feel like they were taken over by an alien or they were. You know, just all kinds of things. And I'm just curious if you knew from a young age that maybe you were different.
2: You know, I don't really talk about my early childhood much. Not in public, you know, not not very much. Uh, I had a really beautiful early childhood. You know, Uh, things got, you know, interesting as I got older. But, you know, my earliest memory is being in a running stroller. That my mom had rigged, this was in the 90s. Uh, <laughs> they, they didn't really have like really fancy running strollers. My mom had rigged a mosquito net and a plastic shield onto the running stroller. My mom was a marathoner. And so I remember being at Brown County in Indiana, uh, eating grapes in a stroller. And that was one of my earliest childhood memories. And I was maybe like two or three because my parents moved to Texas when I was three. So I know this was before I was before I was three. And around that time, we had a dog. I remember the dog. Dog's name was Jamaica. And some pesky teenagers had shot my dog with a BB gun. And I remember being sad that there was no no more dog because apparently I had used to want to ride my my childhood dog. Now I was like a one, two year old. Type stuff. My mom taught me how to uh, speak, um, how to, how to talk, and read a little bit when I was age two and three. My mom was a, a kind of different kind of mom for the nineties. You know, she was into health foods and running. You know, and uh, former police officer. So you know, I had a really great early childhood. Um, when I got to Texas, uh, that's when we were in the summer of 1998. It was the hottest summer on record in Texas. It was like 110 degrees. I remember burning myself with the buckles in the backseat of my parents' car because <laughs> it was so hot. And I remember climate change being one of the first terms that I remember like thinking about, like, what happens if it gets too hot here? And, you know, I, I guess you could say... I had an abnormal, I guess you could say, childhood just because my parents uh, were really smart people and I didn't really recognize that back then. Um, you know, I had flashcards and reading decks, you know, before I was age five. Before I was school age, I was already doing mathematics. You know, my dad was a mathematician and a draftsman and he's a very accomplished draftsman. Um, he had me building uh, dollhouses uh, on AutoCAD Revit um it's like when I was seven and eight but you know it was I had a really great childhood I'm, I'm not sure um my mom named me Acacia and that's the name of an entheogen and I didn't realize that was the name of an entheogen until I was probably like six or seven um my mom would tell stories about the Ark of the Covenant being made of Acacia wood um and also of royal priesthoods like the the Levites um, from Ethiopia. And, um, you know, I noticed different things being at church. You know, I hated being in a church where I couldn't feel the spirit of God. I hated it. If I went to a church and it seemed like there was some fake stuff going on, I would absolutely completely shut down and my parents hated that because they were very spiritual people (laughs) so if I looked like I wasn't having a good time they hopped from like five different churches trying to find a church that I would want to get baptized at and finally I found a church and it was really because the people the people touched my soul wasn't so much what the preacher said it was looking into people's eyes and seeing this incredible wisdom this incredible light and compassion. And I wanted to be around people who had that kind of light and, you know, I didn't think much of it. I just thought, okay, this is how humans are. You know, there are some humans who seem empty and there are some humans who seem bright and there are some humans who seem dark, you know, I, I like the bright humans. They seem nice. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't really see myself as at all as being any different, you know, of a, human being than anybody else really we're all really 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 teeny tiny on the grand scale of things you know what I know is a drop of water and a vast ocean of wisdom and I don't know shit um use my language um I'm personally like uh did I know anything about my childhood I don't really I feel like I came here for a purpose and that purpose is something that I am still creating every day that I wake up one day at a time. Have you heard of the TV show, uh, the man who fell to earth?
1: I think so. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, there was this really interesting part where the guy was saying to his, uh, the dad in the movie or the TV show, he was saying to his uh, daughter, you know, the, the only rule about improv is I can't stop. And I think that when you live your life like improv, you know, you are, not trying to force your life. You're not trying to stick to some goal or some pie in the sky. You know, you're not identifying with your ego. You're not identifying with your job title or your degree or your credentials or what you're doing for other people or what you're doing for yourself. You are, as you go, trying to make the best or most positive decisions for yourself and those around you. And if you take care of yourself first, then you don't even have to worry about yourself After a certain point. You can really just express freely once you enter that flow state and you enter that space, you know? And so I work on balancing myself out, you know, so that I can be helpful to others. And there are times where, you know, I'm out of balance. So I might disappear for a month or two because I can't help anybody. I can't save anybody. I can't do anything for anybody anyway they have to do it for themselves. I can be a good example though. And so I work on being a better example when, you know, I'm giving a lecture or I'm doing a YouTube podcast or something or like this, you know, I want to be a good example if I can, or inspire somebody, you know, totally. I can.
1: so your parents, it sounds like your dad was a draftsman and your mom is a ex police officer and, and runner or mm-hmm. uh, um and were you the only child in your family i had a half brother
2: uh or half sister um it's interesting uh topic but yeah i have a and a sibling and um we didn't grow up together i grew up alone so i guess you could say i was an only child yeah
1: and then I think sometimes there's this like comprehension in birth order theory that only children tend to be kind of selfish people, but you seem to be kind of based in a life of service.
2: Well, that's not to say that I didn't have selfish qualities, and I I still, you know, you know, it, it it's like you can do anything you want. Something that my dad said, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't believe him. It didn't really seem like I had the power of choice. Now I know I can decide to be. Uh, selfish in a way that helps others, you know, help myself so I can help everybody else. But back when I was younger, you know, of course, of course, like any only child, you know, you're going to have some narrow minded ideas. And until you get out of your little box and you experience the real world, of course, you're going to feel like everything revolves around you. And I think I did for a little while, you know, and I feel like the mushroom helped me to get out of my bubble.
1: And so your childhood, you were in Indiana until about two or three, and then you moved to Texas, and you pretty much grew up in Texas?
2: Well, you know, Texas is a very big place. (laughs) You know, you could fit several states inside of Texas. You go to Austin, it's like a different country than if you go to Dallas or San Antonio. I've lived in several different places in Texas that were like different countries. Like the difference between Houston and Dallas is huge. Right. San Antonio, you know, I grew up uh, in the municipality of Dallas and, um, we use entheogenic technologies because plant medicine, I feel like is an inadequate term to describe, um, how many different flavors of herbalism and naturopathic medicine all the way up to, uh pure, purely derived Taoist <laughs> magic and uh, Hinduism, Vedicism, Islam. There's just such a spectrum of things that are covered in the community that we serve as people who work within theaters. And I was I grew up in an all-American city. And back in the 90s that's where everyone wanted to move because it was one of the most diverse cities on the planet. We had a very large Asian population, a small black population. Um, I I don't remember um, back then if you had black, white, Asian and Native American and Indian people, you're considered like an all-American city. Now they don't have such things, I don't think, Um, because hopefully it's a melting pot now. But in Texas, you know, especially in Dallas, it was kind of unique uh, to have one city that wasn't divided by railroad tracks, you know, that had a melting pot already developed. So, you know, I grew up around, I had a lot of friends who were from India, had a lot of friends who were um, Asian or Thai. Um, you know, I, I, I got to see a little bit of everything, you know, uh, I went to school for about a year. I went to first grade and kindergarten. And after that I got pulled out of college, uh, not college, actually <laughs> say college, I got pulled out of school and, you know, I was homeschooled into college.
1: And so, but, but, um, and just to clarify your family's ethnic heritage is, is we're
2: a melting pot. I'm not any one thing. Um, you know, I could go through my whole ancestor tree. Um, I I guess you could say, I, I, I feel like I honor where I researched the most, you know, the Panamanian heritage in, in my dad's lineage and then also the African and Native American lineage on my mother's side. Um, but there's a lot more to it than that, but I didn't grow up in that kind of a culture um, mainly because in the 90s, you know, it's like you're trying to blend into the culture of the Christian homeschooler uh, and that's its own thing. It, it's it's you know it's very scary i guess you could say for someone to dress in a dashiki in an environment like in north texas where everyone's wearing long denim skirts you know and uh so it was a it was not culturally connected but my mother being a, a master researcher that she is you know really fed my obsession with national geographic i had libraries of
0: leather. The Strong Women in Psychedelics podcast was created to create a platform for women in the psychedelic movement. It is a safe place to explore misogyny and internalize sexism as it plays out on the field of psychedelic politics. As I'm interviewing you for Strong Women in Psychedelic Politics, one of the, the themes of
1: the podcast is how do we empower women? How do we challenge kind of this white male dominance within the field of psychedelics
2: Well, there's a group of people, many groups of people, who will use whatever it is that they consider to be their thing to reinforce their negative ideas and not change or evolve. doesn't matter where you go, you're going to find it anywhere. Meditation communities and and vegan and holistic spaces, they're going to sometimes make up reasons to validate their internalized uh, homophobia. Or misogyny or misandry, even on the women's side towards men. And so I think that people who are really trying to understand love and understand compassion and divine qualities, you would think that those would be the people who want to break out of old thought forms. You know, a simple paradigm is treat everyone as you'd like to be treated yourself or do no harm do as you will, do as you please. And I don't really see that as a moral compass, but I see it as a way of life. And I think that there are those of us who live that way of life outside of these social constructs and these political clusters of people who are really looking for integrative support more than anything. But ultimately, sometimes they are creating uh Containers for this suppressed anger, uh, this this desire that I need to be heard. I need to be seen. I would like someone to really give me that validation just hold me and hold space for me. And I think that that's natural. I think that that's absolutely natural. And best thing that i can hope for is that they will be able to have time and have space to be acknowledged to be truly acknowledged and if not by others but by themselves to say i see me i see all the work that i've done i see all the struggle i've gone through i see me and i love me and my love. You can't nobody else love me like I can love me. And hopefully start on that path to deeper
1: healing. I appreciate the way that you put that. Could you tell me a little bit about your uh your venture to bring people to Mexico? You
2: know, it's like as start- our As our friends and our elders age, you want to do things with them. You want to spend time with them. And of course, you know, a lot of us who aren't running big businesses and stuff, we need some money for plane tickets. So this is a funding for Tom Lane to get plane tickets to come and give us a tour of the places he loves. The sacred mushroom temples of Xochicalico, where the Stellas of Tetzalcoatl are the journey of the deified heart, the first mushroom trip that we have that's recorded by the Aztecs on stuccoed deer skin. we're going to go see it in person and maybe trip with it in person. We don't know. Uh, and then go to Teotihuacan, July 14th, and then go to Malinalco, the eagle's nest. You know, Teotihuacan translates to the place where men go to become God. And this is where men go to become deified. You know, that's where you take the mushroom and you walk up the steps and you would ascend into a higher vibration and you would feel the vibration supporting you and be able to really release. And that's, I want to preserve the essence of the actual ritual use beyond it just being a beautiful museum or a beautiful Mayan pyramid that we understand why they're there and the context in which they were used from the indigenous philosophers and from the indigenous people themselves by reading the codices and acknowledging their philosophy as being valid, even though it's not Western dualistic philosophy, even though it's monistic philosophy.
1: Right on. And you're doing that uh, just one time with him. You don't plan to do it that ongoing just because, Mm -hmm. you know, I have my nonprofit and I'm Doing work with sending people to different healers to do different kind of retreats and things like that.
2: You know, it's like it depends. You know, he's 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 an elder. He's an elder elder. So I am gonna see how this goes. You know? You're doing Uh, it's only only eight people, yeah, it's July fourteenth, it's five days. And we're just gonna we're gonna temple hop and we're gonna go to the museum and we're gonna learn about Tom. Uh learning about sacred mushroom rituals and ceremonies and Mm -hmm. the journey of the deified heart and hopefully end the trip lighter and feeling better than when we came, you know, and I live in Oaxaca, so, you know, it's pretty easy for me to show up in Mexico city.
0: This is a production of strong women in psychedelic politics. When you were talking about your early Christian experiences and going to these different churches
1: to get, you know, figure out which one felt good for you um, to get baptized at. And you said you felt such a beautiful connection with the people there. Um, and I and I really resonated with that because I have a friend who's who I used to go to her um, pretty much all black church before I converted to Judaism. And and, you know, I don't think I went to the church because I liked the church. I think I went to the church because I liked Renee and I just loved Can Renee. Say
2: something? Yeah. You know, I think that church is for the people. You know, when the Bible says two or more are gathered in God's name, there's a church.
1: Right.
2: Why would would two or more people have to be gathered if it wasn't about the people it's about uplifting the people's vibration it's about the vibration of divinity coming through the singing coming through the ritual of the dancing coming through the ritual of the preaching and the uplifting of good sacred principles and this is the that is the authentic african religion if you go into sangoma or if you go into yoruba or if you go into EFA, if you go into any of the spiritual systems in Africa, there are cross parallels that no one wants to talk about because many people are not educated in their own cultural diverse heritage. They don't see it as ritual. They see it as oppression because of trauma. That's right. post-traumatic stress syndrome. They're judging it so they're not able to fully see what it is. And it took me years to really appreciate christianity as much as i appreciate islam as much as i appreciate zen and soto zen buddhism as much as i appreciate vetticism as much as i appreciate the spirituality of the sangomas in south africa and these are all systems that i've studied in lived in ashrams stayed at buddhist watts like i i've had a very diverse spiritual experience at a young age mm-hmm. and what i can tell is now that when i hear and people are like a black church singing, I'm like, look at God sing. I think of it differently. And when you see the old women in the church, I know that you've probably seen the white hat women, you know, they wear white. And that's actually a symbol of of uh, Obatala in Africa. And Obatala is equi- equated with being the Christ or or that is the Christ consciousness of Africa. It connects to Obatala, who is the, the most high, the most high God of the Orishas and the Orishas are nature spirits as well as they are forces of energy and motion. And, you know, they have Oya, uh, they have Elegba, there's no Satan, but there is a trickster. And even though I said, there's no devil in Africa, Elegba holds a certain kind of connotation, you know, that, you know, almost, you know, certain things, certain behaviors like stealing and theft and whatnot, um, are connected to Ilegba and to send that energy away is a good thing sometimes, you know? So, you know, there are, there are entities and spirits and demons, you know, in almost every religious system, you know, foreign spirits, you know, and it's really important to understand at least one spiritual system thoroughly before you jump around to multiple ones. I feel like the easiest spiritual system to understand is one that starts inside your body because then it gives you something to relate to before you make the altar. You first have to understand the altars inside your body before you decide you're going to light candles. You have to understand the candles represent your essence and your life force. You know, before you light the incense, you know, outside of yourself, light the incense and in fragrant thought and fragrant kindness inside your mind. Let the incense be beautiful thoughts and beautiful places and beautiful experiences that you are wishing or longing to have, but that you've had, that you're reflecting on. And perfume your body with beautiful behaviors. And that this is like Taoist wisdom that I'm talking about. And I feel like the Taoists who work with the Soul Seven Mushroom really, even though they protected the secrets of Taoism, a lot of the information was written by Dr. Jerry Allen Johnson and some of his Taoist plant medicine, uh, animal magic books. And he really outlines his 80th generation Taoist lineage um, and the heritage of true religion, religion that is with nothing but the human body, you know, understanding the the pure thoughts, the pure energies of compassion and kindness and love as being divine and honoring those qualities within yourself, you know?
1: As you're talking about like demons and things like this, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about uh you know i've had like shamans in mexico tell me that you know certain people have have taken on a demonic possession through their work with ayahuasca Uh
2: very true and it's an opening medicine to not understand that you take a substance like psilocybin to open up your spirit if you already have a weak or injured spirit which many people do and you don't know how to defend your mind or defend your values, or you don't have any values that you find are worthy to defend. Maybe you don't know anything. You open yourself up for something to tell you what you are and who you are and to absorb your identity.
0: Yeah.
2: And take advantage of using your body to experience sex or to experience greed or to experience, in you know, a lower or even higher qualities. Right. But wrapped up in a spiritual ego, you know, when you unwrap that bag, you find all sorts of things in it.
1: I, I had a friend who uh, now believes she has a multiple personality disorder, but my other friend believes that she got kind of taken over by some kind of energy when she did mushrooms. Um, That's
2: very true. It happens. She was, she was
1: already pretty mentally fragile, but like, it just seems to like have sent her off the deep end.
2: Yeah, that that's that that can happen. That's why mushrooms are not necessarily something that's an option for everyone. Right. Going to a traditional healer, they would use cleansing herbs, sacred ointments, and holy oils to keep certain kinds of certain smells. Uh, this is the funny part about science because I me mean, coming from a background of astrophysics and geophysics is like. I will say that the science has helped me to bridge my understanding of spirituality even deeper. I took skepticism classes in college. Anyway, here's something funny. Holy ointments contain frankincense or myrrh and are antibacterial. And many indigenous tribes consider demons to be a bacterial sickness, something that travels on the breath, something that travels on touch. When someone with a demonic energy touches someone else, something can be transferred and that can be bacteria along with energy and it can manifest as a sickness inside of the body or a disease or a disorder. And when you use these ointments of protection before you go into the mushroom trip, like copal in Mexico is used to wash the mushroom. You wash it with copal smoke. You, you move the mushroom back and forth in the smoke that literally sanitizes it before you put it in your mouth and puts antibacterial properties and terpenes that help you to be able to breathe better, you know? um so by inhaling the smell of the frankincense you know the the brain nose connection right the brain there's these nerves between the inside of the the, the nose the nasal cavity and the brain that are sending signals here um they're just I guess you so said that, explain that's this so
1: deep uh, so deep i lived with a, a medicine man in the bush in belize and and copal was like such a significant um just medicine to be exposed to that was very um just you know changed my life to be introduced to copal on so many levels
2: yeah they call it the olfactory bulb and it connects to the limbic system of the brain so your olfactory nerves uh carry the copal smoke directly to your brain and when it bypasses the blood brain barrier that would normally shield the brain from harmful bacteria or or organisms um the olfactory nerves are critical for your sense of smell so if you can smell it the anti-inflammatory properties are also going to go to your brain as well and promote that healing to already take place you know so it's literally like giving you anesthetic for a surgery that's going to take place inside your mind
1: (laughs) no i i can't even put towards my, my just my connection with this substance is so profound it feels so big to my soul um so one last question um aren't you suffering from long covid is that correct no okay what what is that long covid have you heard of that no okay i may have misinterpreted one of your posts but um I I have someone else in the plant medicine community that I know that is uh suffering from long COVID it's they caught COVID and then it continues to like um impact them and so it's oh of- well that's pretty much everyone because
2: COVID can cause it can cause neurological damage so you have to you have to be really skilled at healing your body like I I the tonics and herbs that I've you know, that I have are really good for that. You know, what I do is I teach cultural literacy and ethnobotanical plant medicine. So I teach about the stories of certain herbs and how they became legendary healing plants and, you know, their personalities, as well as their medical uses, as well as how to combine spiritual and ritual use um, to activate, you know, deeper healing qualities of certain plants in ancient times. So... I've got a lot of herbs like deer antler velvet that are used to regenerate the brain um, and select tree seed to restore, uh, temporary memory loss, you know, due to, um, having damp in your lungs, uh, a wind in your lungs, like COVID.
0: Um,
2: and, uh, you know, I was able to drive it out of my body completely. It just took me two weeks and that's, that's incredibly long for someone like myself. Normally a day, a day and I'm good, you know? Uh, so I really hate to think, you know, people who are, like you say, long COVID, suffering for months, how much it's going to deplete them, you know, and, and it would be really important if they stock up on some ant or some chapulinas or some sort of organic insect material, because they don't understand that in other countries, where you can't buy vitamin C or zinc supplements. They have nature's bioavailable vitamin resource, which is, you know, polyurexacin contains more zinc than any other supplement plant or animal uh, not not artificial but any natural plant animal or or uh insect substance you know you can eat a, a, a gram of of ant powder essentially polyuracistam is considered the king of herbs in chinese medicine hey yi is the chinese medicine term for it and it is a vitality tonic that doesn't contain any stimulants but you can get it online for like 15 bucks and I was able to cure other people's COVID with Polyracus ant extract, a little bit of wormwood to kill off the viral load in the in the system, and uh, several other tonics like uh, Remiana and um, you know Manuka honey and electrolytes. It's it's pretty easy to get it out of the body if you know how it got in, you know. So zinc is what's responsible for your sense of smell and taste. So. As soon as you're able to restore that back, you know, zinc is also responsible for your cell-to-cell neuronal connections. So since the the virus is designed to deplete you of zinc, you can imagine how much brain damage can be done if your neurons can't talk to each other because there's no zinc
1: right.
0: in your body. So this is a production of Strong Women in Psychedelic Politics in association with Entheo Society. Entheo Society is a 501c3 nonprofit focused on plant medicine, community, and education. Please consider a tax-deductible donation today. Check out our two websites, which are entheosocietywa.org and entheosociety.net.
2: I, I'm an educator first and foremost. Okay. Um, you know, I I would be the one to help assist with maybe some people who are doing healing work. I've 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 brought shaman and uh, other people who are on that path to be holistic healers to my teachers and elders and help Mm -hmm. them sit with them and get training Mm -hmm. because I work with a variety of elders in Mexico and other countries. Mm -hmm. But first and foremost, you know, it's education. And then secondly, you know, some people come to me for research and, you know, it's really just the facts, you know, it's not something that, I'm like, oh, you know, here's this bogus solution, go drink some bleach, everything's going to be fine. No, you know, I'm I'm a trained skeptic who has had experiences combining medical research and indigenous history um, to find a common ground uh, between uh, what's considered magic in the Amazon rainforest and considered science in the United States.
1: And so... Do you have a, a sense of as we approach legalization, um, does any of that concern you or do you feel like it's a progress? Do you feel like we're moving forward or does it not interest you because it seems insignificant in the greater, you know, scheme of things? This- well, we're
2: all working together. You know, those of us who work with the entheogen and those of us who connect the source, we're all working together, I feel like. Um they're going to be, it's like a toddler, you know, it's baby, it's a baby, you know, it's going to cry. It's going to scream. It's going to shit its pants. Right. You just got to let it, Right. you know, and as it matures and you teach it some manners, right. hopefully it won't go and embarrass you. And, you right. know, like, like Prince George on national television, you know, like will not right. start screaming your head off in front of the queen or some shit. Right. You know? um, it's going to take time. It's going to take probably five to 10 years before it's, you know, at least presentable to, I guess you could say, um, you know, people who are, uh, very plugged into the pharmaceutical, Western, dualistic, um, hierarchical, you well, know, even, political.
1: Even what you said about how people that are treating it like an object, that they're gonna learn, they're gonna get schooled, that that's like maybe like, you know, that, that Oh yeah, you always get your butt paddled by the right. mushroom. Right. You're always gonna
2: have that experience.
1: So here's my point with all that is I was at the Oracle at Delphi, right? And the Oracle at Delphi historically they used plant medicine like in their ritual and ceremony and they like touched god or they were like a conduit for god for like doing giving prophecy, right? All across Europe. Like the most powerful came to these women that were historically like they could be poor as dirt, but it didn't matter because these women were the only ones who had the connection with the other side and they used these medicines and now I think about, like, these medicines, which were historically kind of reserved for, like, your names your, you know, your name came from, like, this holy wood that, you know, was the burning bush or whatever. But these medicines were historically only for, like, Plato or only for Sophocles or only for, like, the most holy or the most whatever, like, the oracle at Delphi. But now you're going to see them in mass production.
2: That's it, not necessarily true. You know, like, Acacia Wood was burned by the common Bedouin, you know, uh, camel herder you know syrian rue was drank as a tonic you know long you know the god of drunkenness best created the first sweat lodge in ancient kemet you know this was wine wine was syrian rue back in the day psychedelics you know weren't reserved for the most sacred of people there
1: i feel like the people who had access were like the rich or the powerful or the most holy or whatever even
2: like egypt it was it was for the priest class those who were working with uh honoring the Necheru or ancestors in kemet i don't subscribe to the greco roman schools of thought really because they don't you know they, they exist but they were behind the times of many other cultures that were existing alongside them
1: but my thought is, then, what happens when we take something historically or culturally that, at least for like modern history, has been reserved for like maybe the most holy? Um, That's
2: how you become holy: is experiencing the divine.
1: What happens then when it's like because our can because when I think about when I try to explain to people the idea of psilocybin being legal because I'm leading the statewide effort for legal psilocybin in Washington State, I feel like people try to think about it the way they think about cannabis, right? And for me, yeah,
2: tons of people from cannabis. cannabis are coming into mushrooms and growing mushrooms now to make money.
1: But, and, but that concept of treating it the same for me, there's like a, gonna, a there's a more godlike element to the psilocybin. Like there's an entity speaking that's different than cannabis. They're
2: gonna shit themselves. I keep telling you, it's a baby. They're gonna.
1: They're Shit themselves. (laughs) They're gonna
2: shit themselves. I'm telling you. Like it's just bound to happen. There's gonna be a panic. There's gonna be a (laughs) a psychosis. There's gonna be a lady on the on the street saying the world's ending right now. And convinced that that, that's what's happening. And we just have to be
1: good stewards. Right. But I just feel like this is gonna be touching God for these people that don't understand like what they're doing or what they're doing. It's
2: going to benefit the large majority of people because the mushroom has You know, as long as we keep good guidelines, what's not coming over is the culture. What's not coming over, like like mainstream media is promoting psychotherapy and clinical research studies when they should be promoting the cultural rights of passage of utilization in a safe way of the psilocybin mushroom. You're going to encounter death. You're going to encounter birth. Before Mm -hmm. you ever have the experience, you know, looking at the Yodotono Mixtech Codex, it gives you a full trip report. It shows Quetzalcoatl holding mushrooms, eating two mushrooms, two by two, until he gets to like 40 mushroom caps. And it shows you every step that you're going to get to on the map of the mushroom, of eating the mushroom, meeting the wise sage, meeting your consciousness, meeting yourself, getting fed more mushrooms, then going to see the underworld and getting exposed to the god of death and finally having to overcome your fear of yourself. And then meeting your brothers and sisters who also work with mushrooms, who have good hearts, and then having to clean up your disorganized life as as symbolized by the lake of fire that Ketakwala. He's literally butt up, like like his, his feet are flailing in the air in this pictograph from, you know, thousands of years ago. And then once he passes through this lake, he finally becomes himself, his true self, the jaguar warrior, who is confident and powerful and has a burning heart for peace and kindness and compassion, and the two-faced Quetzalcoatl, which shows him looking into the past and future at the same time. And ultimately, if we don't honor the cultural heritage, you know, this toddler is never going to get some diapers.
1: <laughs> because why?
2: Because you can't you can't work with something that is sacred without honoring the culture. that the, the Mesoamerican sages were working with this long before Plato ever existed long before aristotle ever existed you can't look in the wrong place for the people who cannot claim it as their cultural heritage item you know we gotta look at um ancient records and 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 the upanishads you know the upanishads were written with a somatic influence and if we can't agree that soma was psilocybin but we do agree that was an entheogen that at least we should be importing some of the basic models for kindness and compassion and wisdom that come from those same Upanishads. Half of the quotes you see on Facebook are linked to some sort of ancient scripture. And just people aren't, you know, they've got that five minute uh, attention span. Been, yeah. Read the Bible, read the Upanishads, right. read the Veda read the Journey of the Deified Heart, read something that has a connection to an entheogen that resonates with you. So you have some basic guidelines right. to do this in a sacred way. And you are a holy person. It doesn't matter who you are. You're born sacred you know the mesoamerican nahual sages believe it's not just sacred because of dualistic hierarchical patriarchal behavior you know like we had in ancient greece it's not just sacred because you have plato and socrates with their male servants you know uh you know what a mentor means for ancient greece you know is is a male teacher who has a student who he passes on his consciousness to by reserving his semen and giving his semen to his student you know he then becomes literally becomes like we we really got to to decide who we want to listen to here you know and personally i would rather learn from uh the mesopotamian people people of the fertile crescent who wrote the egyptian book of the dead the tibetans who wrote the tibetan book of the dead um and uh many different sutras and very beautiful stories like the lotus sutra like this the ten vows of samantabhadra which mirrors the story of Jesus Christ. We have these stories of the hero's journey and the hero's journey is really the mushroom trip. That is the true hero's journey, you know? And so yeah, if we if we give ourselves a chance to really sit with that and recognize that this is literally the struggle is literally what we're supposed to go through. <laughs> as women or men or whatever gender, you know, non-gender, you know, it, it's like in, in uh, ancient, uh, Aztec times. This is too ancient, actually. You know, this is still to this day. There was no male or female. There was male, female becoming. There was female, male becoming. When a, a, a woman uh, gave birth and she, she was sacrificing her blood when the male warrior went and spilled his blood on the battlefield, he was considered female. Because it was the women who sacrificed the blood. That wasn't something that it didn't, when he came back home into the house, he was considered a being. He wasn't considered male or female. This was imposed on us by Western dualistic beliefs. And personally, like, I, I, I'm a being in a body. I don't, I'm, I'm not trying to sit here and say, okay, well, my birth certificate says I'm female. So, you know, I, I, I'll just, for, for ease of use, I'm a woman because my birth certificate says I'm female. But ultimately, I know I've been a million and one different things. And I I can become anything that I want to become because I have divine spirit within me. Totally. And I and, and in this lifetime, the only thing I can ask for is to be a good woman or a good being, you know? And uh, tr- really try to find out what it means to be a woman. What does it mean to be a being?
1: Totally. What does it
2: mean to even be good? You know?
1: Right. I want to end there, but um, I just really um, can't say enough just how amazing I find
0: your teachings and your, um, your, what you have to share. Thank you. Thank you to Jeremy Shaskus with Quasi Music for editing and production. Credit given to Seymour Downey for music and creator and producer Leo Russell. This is a production of Strong Women in Psychedelic Politics in association with Entheo Society. Entheo Society is a 501c3 nonprofit focused on plant medicine community and education. Please consider a tax-deductible donation today. Check out our two websites, which are entheosocietywa.org and entheosociety.net.